Well, good morning, Southside Church. Um, Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, so please open your Bibles with me uh, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 18. And once you have found your place uh, in the Bible, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And the Lord says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be found that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that we may hear your word this morning. We ask, Father, that you would put away all distractions and that you would give us a spirit of attentiveness. And Father, I ask that you would put my nerves aside, that you would help me to worship as I preach, and that you would be glorified this morning. And we ask this in the everlasting name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to imagine for a second that you had to um, describe a platypus to someone who's never seen one before and you aren't able to use a picture. It would be rather odd, wouldn't it? I remember the first time I saw a platypus and I was like, huh, that's unusual. Um, It's kind of like a beaver, but it's not. Um, It's kind of like a duck, but at the same time, it's not that either. And then it kind of has like a body of an otter, but it's not an otter. Well, the big idea of this passage this morning is kind of like a platypus. It's a little unusual, and it's a little odd, because the Apostle Paul tells us that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How can we say, on the one hand, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and on the other hand, say that we are to work out our salvation. The two just don't seem to go together, but then again, neither do the parts of a platypus. So my goal this morning is to make sense of this odd text and look at its implications. And so the main point for these seven verses this morning is that Christians are called to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. And we are given two ways in this text to do that. First, we are called to do all things for God without grumbling and complaining. 
And second, we are to hold fast to the word of life. Um, now, I have many things to say this morning. This uh, unfortunately may not be a short sermon, but we're just going to jump right into the text for this morning. And we're going to look at the first word in our text in verse 12, and it says, therefore. This one word kind of frames our entire section for this morning. It reminds us that uh, verses 6 through 11, which was last week, uh, told us of Jesus' sacrifice and his death for our salvation. It reminds us that our salvation has already been won, that the death of Christ has covered our sins, that salvation that we have through Christ stands as a mighty oak over our text this morning. It tells us that when Paul says we are to work out our salvation, he cannot be referring to to working our salvation and having enough deeds to get into heaven. In no way is this a works-based salvation because Jesus had just won our salvation in the previous verses. Instead, Paul wants us to know that the radical obedience of Jesus Christ is the obedience that we are all called to have. The obedience that led to his humiliation is our obedience as well. The obedience that led to his death, well, that's the call of every Christian. In other words, Christ's obedience has established the ultimate obedience of every Christian in this room. And that's what Paul means by therefore. So let's look at verse 12 all together then. He says this in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You see, the Christians at Philippi seem to have a a good track record of obedience. I mean, if the Apostle Paul says, hey, you're doing pretty good, then you have to kind of say, you know what, maybe I'm doing all right. But what he wants to ensure is that we continue to obey. Obey just not when it's easy, but when it gets hard. You see, when, when the path of obedience in the Christian life begins to get steep, when the pathway begins to narrow, and the sun begins to darken, the winds of life pick up, the question that's set before us in this text is, will you press on? When there's suffering, will the church find you striving for the faith? Or with the religious Taurus of our day, will you turn back? Will your faith anchor when the sensational music wanes or when the ride comes to an end? So Paul's exhortation for this morning, for the church at Philippi and for this church, Southside, are we going to obey in the highs and lows of the Christian faith? Are we going to continue in the faith when it's just not just times of peace, but times of stress? And just as we have always obeyed, Paul says that we must press on. And he says, keep obeying even in my absence. You see, our faithfulness to Christ cannot just be when the apostles are around to encourage us and to see us. And here's something I'm sure we can all relate to. Um, in our workplaces, we're all pretty good when the boss is walking around the office. Am I right? Uh, possibly when your boss's boss is walking around, you're probably going to get to work on time. You might even uh, put on some actual work clothes, maybe uh, exchange the Crocs for some loafers. Um, But as their father in the faith, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Don't just obey because I'm there. Don't just obey because you're trying to impress me. But I need you to obey because I'm not always going to be there. And you need to obey because of your reverence, because of your awe of God, who he is and what he is doing within you. 
And there's an important lesson here for sure. See, many times in the Christian life, we often do things um, for other reasons, but for God. You know, maybe you start dating a girl and you realize she's a Christian, so you just start reading your Bible that you haven't picked up in 10 years. Um, maybe it's that you go to pray to God because you, you really, really want something. But instead of going to God just to see what he has for you, no matter what the cost is, you're just trying to confirm what you want. When we argue with our spouses or with our families, are we motivated by being right or are we motivated by truth, motivated by reconciliation? Maybe we do good deeds so others can see us. How many companies right, give a ton of money at the end of the year to help their taxes and for good media, not just uh, to be generous? We have to understand, church, that motivations matter to God. The Bible says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. Jesus said it this way, there is no reward in heaven for those who practice righteousness in front of others. You see, there's a way to go about the Christian life. There is a way to pray. There's a way to attend church, a way to attend our small groups, a way to lead our families that is devoid of any real affection for God. And the Apostle Paul says to be on guard. Watch your affections. Let's move on. And, and now we get to verses 12 and 13, and this is the platypus of our text for this morning. He says this in verse 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This word for work is the heavyweight champion of our verses for this morning. Everything else that's said in these seven verses relates to this one single word for work. And it can be translated in many ways, but it, it kind of gives the idea of continuous and sustained, strenuous effort. It, it means to produce something, to bring about a state of being. In other words, the Apostle Paul commands Christians everywhere to put strenuous effort to bring about and produce their own salvation. But does Paul mean that we work to earn our salvation? Can we somehow bring about our own deliverance? Uh, if this were the case, he'd be contradicting the other 12 letters that he's written in the New Testament. Rather, this verse is calling us to put forth effort into our Christian lives. We are not accomplishing salvation, but we are working it out what is already there. We work out salvation to see it in every aspect of our Christian life. You see, salvation was completed by Christ when, when uh, the Son of God, when he died on the cross in his last words, when he said, it is finished, he wasn't lying. Salvation, it is here and it's present, but there's also a sense where salvation has not been completed within us. We are called here to carry the gift of salvation to its conclusion, to bring about the full consequences of what God has already given us. In other words, we must work out what God is working in. Um, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon says it like this, the good sculptor, whenever he sees a suitable block of marble, he firmly believes that there's a statue concealed within it and that it is his business 
to take away the superfluous material and so unveil the thing of beauty. He says, believer, you are that block of marble, but we cannot see the image of Christ in you yet. We must go on chipping away at the sins, chipping away at the infirmities and corruptions till the fair likeness of the incarnate Son of God shall be seen by all. So not only does the Apostle Paul say to work out your salvation, but we are to work at it with fear and with trembling. And we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling because verse 13 says, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, why do we need a, a tremble and why do we need a fear? We must run the race with fear because it is the God of the universe who is working on the inside of us. The same power that divided the Red Sea is working in you. The God who stopped the sun after Joshua prayed is laboring and he's working within all of us. The God who fills every valley, he lays flat every mountain, he straightens crooked paths. That God is the same God who is working within us. The one who ordains all history, who orders all events, who works all things to his glory, whose word does not return void, who accomplishes all that he sets out to do, who is all-powerful, utterly unstoppable, wholly capable of all things, says, "I, I am with you, that I am for you, that I live inside of you, that I am working in you. And that church is why we fear and we tremble for our salvation. Because the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead works within us. But there's another reason why we fear and tremble as well. And it's because God is always present within us. When we are preparing to sleep, when we are preparing to go to bed, when the the rope of sin might be tugging at our hearts, when we're arguing with our spouses, complaining about our family, when you think you're home alone with just you and a computer, when you're neglecting to lead your families, whatever you do or don't do in this life, you are always in the presence of the King. This should cause us to think twice before we argue with our brothers and sisters in the faith. Think again before breaking fellowship with Christ's body. Oh, that we would look away from our differences of opinion and preserve the reputation of God at all costs, both in the church and at home. May we never be caught dragging the name of our Savior through the dirt, tarnishing his reputation because of our arrogance and our pride. Let your reputation be tarnished before that ever happens. I would rather let my character be questioned if it would just keep the witness of the church pure and blameless. Look at verse 13 again. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, God's work within us, the verse says, is of two kinds. Our verse tells us that he both wills and that he both works. God first, he wills within us. And and the word will means he he gives us a desire. He gives us a, a purpose and a pleasure. In other words, God gives us the desire to work out our own salvation. 
He is the great originator. There's, there's not a godly desire in our hearts that is not first initiated by God. There's not one good impulse, not one heartbeat of generosity that has not first began with God working and softening our hearts. And since we can do nothing, nothing good without God, there is no room for boasting in the Christian life. Your, your strong self-discipline, uh, your, your possible good character, um, your, your talent and goodness at hospitality, maybe your, your patient nature with children, they are all gifts from the same eternal Father. And so there is no boasting in the Christian life. But he doesn't just give us the will and the pleasure to work, but he says he also works in us. And this is the second kind of work. First he wills, then he works. And that is God is active in putting his will into operation in our lives. He says that God is working in you. Note the preposition. It's inside of us. He gives you the will and the power, but we must do the work. He's not saying uh, let go and let God, which is a, a popular saying in Christianity. Um, neither is he saying, um, get out of the way and let God do all the work. He's also not saying, do what you can do and then let God do the rest. Rather, he is saying, everything that you need to obey in the Christian life is already inside of you. It's already ready and you just must bring it about. You see, grace all sufficient all abounding resides within every Christian. And because he is at work on the inside, we must be at work on the outside. The Holy Spirit is empowering us to obey the will of God that is already at our fingertips. And this is the source of every confidence for the Christian life. We can have supreme confidence in the Christian life because God is at work within us. There is not a work that you do on behalf of God that he will not see to completion. There is no effort that is ever put forth by the church that will ever return void because it is Christ Jesus who is laboring within us. You see, that time where you shared your faith with someone, that time where you, you gave to the homeless, that time where you, you comforted someone who was suffering, that time where you encouraged a brother who was sad, all of these instances, if done for God, have eternal weight and they have eternal significance and they will never be forgotten. They will never fall on deaf ears and they will never come to nothing because it is the work of the eternal Father within us. And so what does this look like practically? We are to make every effort, every effort to bring about our salvation, but we don't put trust in our work, we trust in God. One commentator said it like this. He said, plan hard, but don't trust in your plans. Trust in God. Speak clearly, speak uh, creatively, but don't trust in your speaking. Trust in God. He says, create, produce, lead, and manage, but don't put trust in creativity. Don't put your trust in leadership. Put your trust in God. Uh, there's a proverb that gets the picture perfectly. It says this, a horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Church, we must ready the horses and we must prepare for battle, but we must trust God for the victory. In verse 
13 ends this way. It says that God is working in us for his own pleasure and for his own purpose. You see, the ultimate aim of God's work in our lives is his pleasure. And so what what is his pleasure? Is that we as a church would live to the glory of God, living in unity, in harmony, and in service to one another. That we would lay our lives down for each other. That we would count others more significant than ourselves because that is what Christ did. And that is what pleases the Father. So the Apostle Paul has told us to work out our salvation. And now he's going to tell us how. And we get the first way here in our verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. You see, the call out to work our salvation is a call to obedience in every aspect of the Christian life. All of life is lived in obedience to God. We are are never outside of the realm of Christianity. There is no such thing as a weekend faith. We are called to honor Christ with every thought and with every action. There is not an inch of this world, there is not an inch of ourselves that does not belong to the Father. And so whatever we do in this world, wherever we find ourselves, we are called to work out our salvation without grumbling and without arguing. To argue is to be divisive and to raise doubts and to grumble is to complain in secret. And this is actually an allusion to the Old Testament. You see, uh, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, They were first under Egyptian slavery, and they were forced into hard labor. Uh, They were whipped and beaten, and God heard the cries of his people. And after ten plagues, he broke their bonds of slavery. He brought them out to the wilderness, and he promised to be their God. But the Israelites became ungrateful. Wandering in the desert, they began to complain and said, we want to go back to Egypt. They told God that they would rather go back into slavery than to follow him. And although God had rescued them, and he fed them, he gave them water, promised to never leave them, promised them the best known land in the world, promised to bless them and to always be with them, and they said, we don't want you. They grumbled. It's like the child who wants to run away from home. Um, They think they have everything in the world figured out. This was me at one point, I'm sure. Uh, They thought they were better off not knowing how good they actually have it and how harsh the world actually is. And the Apostle Paul says to the church, he says, this is you. You have no idea how good you have it. No idea the true cost of your salvation. And when there is infighting in the church and there is disunity and there is grumbling and there is arguing, we are mocking the very salvation that we have been given. And we make little of God when the church can't seem to get things together. We look more like a bunch of ungrateful teenagers thinking we know better, and we have no idea how good we have it. No idea how precious the blood was. No idea the sacrifice that the Father made to send his one and only Son to be subjected to humanity. When the church ceases to be the great city on a hill, which is what she is called to do, and she becomes a Sunday social club, it displays how poorly 
we're working out our salvation. But there's more to this. Uh, Listen to what John Chrysostom, that's a last name, isn't it? An early church father in the 300 says about grumbling. He says, how can the children of God murmur at the very same time that they're employed in the affairs of their father? Church, we don't labor for a slave master. We labor for a kind and heavenly father who is gentle and gracious and merciful. So who in the right mind complains that he works for the family business? When we grumble and we complain, we're grumbling against the family of God. And therefore, Christostom says that when the church is murmuring, it borders on blasphemy. Because it shows how ungrateful we are for what God has done. And we are mocking our salvation when, when we can't get it together and we have our own personal preferences that we're trying to push upon other people. And verse 15 gives us the reason that we should not grumble. We shouldn't grumble because it tarnishes the witness of the church and therefore the witness of our Father. He says this, the children of God are to be blameless, innocent, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. Now this is in the context of the church. So to be blameless then is to be without bickering. Um, To be innocent is to not mix your speech with poisonous words. It's to have talk that's undiluted wine. And to be without blemish is to be a people who are not marked by arguments. How are we doing? How's the American church doing with that? Paul is using these words to describe Christians' relationship to other Christians. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the context of the church. And so this is what the church is striving for, to be a counterculture in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And we do this by by showing the world that there's something greater that we have to live for, that, that Christians, that we don't belong here, that we have a heavenly home, that we are just soldiers. We're, we're not cut from the same cloth, that we have something that they don't have, that Christianity has something to offer to the world that isn't just giving the world back to them wrapped up in a Christian burrito. And we do this, verse 15 says, we will shine. Christians will shine as lights in a world when we do this. Christians are like the stars that shine brightest on the darkest nights when they're obeying their Savior. Our little church here at Southside is called to be like the stars in heaven. Despite how small they appear, they can be seen by the whole state, the whole country and world. You see, we, this verse says, we're called to be streetlights among the path, along the path to heaven, signposts to the celestial city, guides on the narrow path of eternal life. And Jesus said it this way, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father. We are the lights that point to the true light. Lights that bear witness to the light of the world. And we shine brightest when we are closest to the Savior. There was a letter written early in church history 
um, possibly in the first century, but no later in the second century. And it's called the letter to Diognetus. And in this letter, he was trying to describe the difference between Greeks, Jews, and Christians in the first century. And he writes this letter to the Roman official and says, if you want to know what Christians are like, if you want to know how they're different from the Greeks and the Jews and, and the barbarians is the other section, he's like, this is what you need to look for. And I'm going to read a part of this letter, chapter 5 in the letter. And he writes this, <clears throat> For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as soldiers. As Christians, they share all things with others, and yet endure as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as if it were their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Talking about killing the infants in the first century. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and yet, at the same time, they surpass the laws by their own lives. This was a picture of the early church in the first and second centuries. Um, the early church wasn't perfect, and he kind of leaves that out in the letter. But nonetheless, it's a historic picture of what the Christians looked like in the first and second century. They displayed the love of their Savior to a dying and a broken world. They were signposts, lampstands in a dark world. And that is our calling here today. Now we move on to the final verses for this morning. At the beginning, Paul said that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he says that we do it without grumbling. And now in verse 16, he's going to give us one more way in how we work out our salvation. And he says this in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Um, the phrase holding fast to the word of life, the uh, word of life is kind of a complicated term. I'm going to attempt to explain it. But when he uses the word word, uh, he means the message of Christianity. It's the message of the gospel that, that God came down from heaven that man may go up to heaven. God came down to earth that man may go to heaven. That's what I meant to say. Um, and he calls it the word of life. And by life, he means eternal life. And so when we put these two things together, they mean that it is the message of Jesus about eternal life. But it's not just the message like in our Bibles, but it's, it's the message that produces eternal life. It, it is generating faith. It is an active message that is producing something. It, it's not static, but it's active. And we as Christians are called to hold fast to this life. And it means that we are to grasp it tightly to fix our gaze upon it, to cling to it, and to hold our ground that by any means possible that we would never leave it, never to avert the eyes, never to let it slip from our presence. And a really good picture comes from about this from a story about the Apostle Peter. 
You see, um, in the gospel, soon after Jesus begins to teach, his, his fame grows really rapidly. And then he begins to say hard things, and people don't understand them. And a lot of the disciples that were following Jesus, they begin to get frustrated at Jesus and begin to complain. And at that time, a lot of the disciples, they abandon Jesus. It was the the biggest, um, I guess, exodus of all the people who were following Jesus in all the times of the Gospels, and they just left. And Jesus, he turns to the original 12 that he called, and he asked them this question. He goes, are you going to leave as well. And Peter gives this great answer. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, in Peter's mind, there is no one else to turn to. He he can't even tolerate the idea of going back. The words of Jesus has satisfied his hungry soul. No words have ever been spoken like the words of the Savior. You see, there was something about them Something that connected to his heart that he knew he had found rest, even though he didn't understand everything, even though he couldn't make sense of everything that was happening, even though he still had doubt. But he had to hold fast to what he knew. And then Peter enters into the marathon of faith, and he must learn to contend and to hold fast to his Savior. You see, if we want everlasting life with God, if you want a life that's been remarkably changed by the gospel, if you want to be sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must learn the discipline of holding fast. You must learn to run the marathon of the Christian life, to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, to lay aside every weight and every sin that so closely entangles and run like you've never run before, never setting your hand to the plow, and looking back. You see, God is looking for long-distance runners, church. He is looking for contenders. He's looking for people who will not get out of the boxing ring when times get tough. Sprinters will not make it. Weakened warriors will fall. And verse 16 says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud and do not run in vain or labor in vain. You see, the Apostle Paul motivates the believers at Philippi to hold fast so that when Christ comes, he may be proud that they endured, proud that they stood firm and held their ground, knowing that he didn't run or labor in vain. In other words, he says, do this for Christ, but as your spiritual father, do this for me as well. Don't let me find that on the day of judgment you are in the camp of the wicked and not in the camp of of the righteous. On the day of Christ, which is the last day, the Apostle Paul, he wants to boast. He wants to be proud how, and show the heavens how God preserved the church at Philippi. He wants to boast to the angels how God rescued the church in the midst of opposition and suffering. Um, Paul wants to boast in front of Satan's army how God willed and he worked within him. He wants to boast in front of all the other believers in heaven how God used the weakness of man to shame the strong. You see, on the day of Christ, when Jesus returns to judge the world, Paul was motivated to work hard for that day. He would be found finishing the race, found at the finish line with the prize in hand, but he would be soaked 
with sweat. And he would be dirty with dirt. I guess that's the only thing you can be dirty with, huh? Paul knew he would have to give an account for his ministry. He knew he would have to give an account for his life. And so he works hard. He says it like this elsewhere. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If Christ lives in you, then there is nothing in this life that we do in vain. Verse 17 says this. Even, Paul says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In both uh, Jewish and Greek rituals, they would not only kill animals on the altar, but they would also pour out wine as a form of sacrifice and worship. And so the Apostle Paul, he uses a common image um, to both Jews and Greeks. And, and there's, a, there's a progression between verse 16 and 17. He first says he's running, that he wouldn't run in vain. And then he says that I wouldn't labor in vain. And now he says that I would pour out my life for you. In the last sermon Johnny preached, he said that we should have the mind of Christ among us. Um, Jesus, who in humility, he emptied himself. How the Son of God becomes a slave to humanity. How the Son of God puts his life in the hands of his creation so that he might die for those who killed him. And just like how Jesus emptied himself, now the Apostle Paul, in a similar way, says, I will empty myself as well. I too, if necessary, will pour out my life on the altar of your faith. He is glad and rejoices and delights at the opportunity to lay his life down in service for the church, that he might become like his Savior, even in death, in which there is not a greater honor or privilege in the Christian life than to die like our Savior has died. That the, that the cross of Christ might continue through the Apostle Paul, not for the atonement of sin, but for the completion of faith. You see, Jesus would never call us to something that he has not already done. And he started a tradition of service and humility. He started a, a movement of radical, life-giving obedience. And the Apostle Paul says, I can see no other way but to honor my Savior than to give my life like he gave his. And verse 18, our last verse, says, likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, the Apostle Paul says that my suffering in prison, and if it comes to it, my life, is something to rejoice in, something to be happy. He says, be happy because it is my honor and privilege to give my life. Be happy because you will see me again at the day of Christ. Be happy and rejoice because for me to live and to die is gain. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, the life and the calling of the Christian is a calling to die to ourselves that Christ might live in us. To lay our lives flattened on the floor in service to one another. We are all vessels of mercy called to pour out ourselves and we pour out our lives and then go back to the wellspring of God's grace in Christ just to be poured into again just to go back out to our families and to our churches to be poured out we pour 
as we are being filled. We labor as we are strengthened. We run as we are energized, trusting that it is more blessed to give than receive. You see, 500 years before Jesus came, Zachariah says this, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. In church, the fountain of God has been opened. Our God is an infinite fountain of life, full of living water and grace, ready to fill, ready to pour forth in anyone who is willing to come. But we have to first love one another. You see, God is not going to pour out. He's not going to pour into us if we are not willing to pour out. I'll close the sermon this morning with this story. Several years ago, some uh, students from Whitworth College in Washington attended a graduation ceremony at a seminary in a a non-Western country. And several of the graduates at the seminary uh, participated in a dramatization, thank you, Um, a drama, a shortened version, that'd be easier, right, Uh, of a drama of the stoning of Stephen, right, the first Christian martyr in history who was stoned to death for proclaiming Jesus to a hostile crowd. And at the end of the ceremony, all the students together, they pledged with one voice to remain faithful to God even in the face of martyrdom. For they knew that some of them would not make it and die a natural death. It's a reality that we don't really have here in America, but are very true in many other countries. You see, not every Christian is called to literal martyrdom, but every Christian is called to surrender his or her life to God. We are all summoned by Christ to live the martyr's life, always denying ourselves always giving ourselves for the sake of others, counting others more significant, willing to be mistreated, willing to be maligned, that Christ may be honored above all. This was the life of our Savior, and there is no greater life than this. There is no greater honor, no greater privilege, no greater badge to wear than to lay our life down for our brothers and sisters in the church. So my question for you this morning is what is stopping you from living that life today? Let's, let's pray.